Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on January 31, 2018, focusing on the new U.S.-based Erosion and Anti-Abuse Tax, or BEAT. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Quinn Nguyen, a PwC Tax Principal, focusing on international tax issues, Tom Quinn, a PwC tax partner also focusing on international tax issues, and Paige Hill, a PwC tax principal and leader of our PwC transfer pricing practice in the United States. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on various nuances relating to the beat, including the impact of NOLs, coordination rules, and interaction with Section 163J, guilty, and other provisions. Quinn. Back to you. Um, take us through some of the impact of net operating losses, if you would, and then we'll, we'll move through some of the other areas. Yeah, I think um, for, for this particular slide, one of the things I wanted to point out, uh, which is interesting, is that when you look at the computation for modified taxable income, it's not just adding back all the tax benefits with respect to base erosion payments. It also includes the base erosion percentage of your NOL deduction. And questions have been um, generated where if you look at what your base erosion percentage is, it's unclear to which taxable year that applies to. So questions have risen up about, well, what if I had an NOL arise, say, in 2015, but the deduction isn't taken until 2018? Is the deduction allowed for my NOL subject to the beat? And the question, the answer is that it's potentially unclear because it talks about a base erosion percentage with respect to your NOL, is the base erosion percentage the percent that applied in 2015 when the NOL arose, or is it the year in which the NOL is actually being deducted? And um, if it turns out that the answer is you look back to 2015 to determine your base erosion percentage, again, as I mentioned on the first slide, when you look at the applicability or the effective date of the provision, your base erosion percentage in 2015 should be zero, because you wouldn't have any payments made um, on or after the taxable year ending, uh, starting after December 31, 2017. But if you're looking at your base erosion percentage that applies in 2018, um, potentially then you would have some uh, beat exposure or at least an add back to your modified taxable income with respect to the NOL. There have also been questions about when you have an NOL that you're bringing forward, what is the starting point if you have losses in a year in terms of computing your modified taxable income? And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think we really wanted to highlight is that it's not just payments that you are making in the current taxable year that expose you to beat. Even if you don't have a payment in the current year, if you or your group have met the definition of an applicable taxpayer, you still might need to compute what your exposure is. And to the extent you are using a lot of NOLs to reduce that regular tax liability, it could put you in the soup for, again, the minimum tax. Um, and many companies are finding that surprising because the min tax may end up being the only tax they have to pay in light of the fact that they've been using NOL deductions for, for losses that they've incurred. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, another thing to note about the beat tax is that there are some coordination rules included uh, in the beat. The first one is that a tax benefit with respect to a base erosion payment will not include any amount that is subject to withholding under 871 or 881. And again, pay attention to this. It's if you're making, for example, interest payments to a related foreign party 
And the interest payment was subject to a zero rate of tax pursuant to an income tax treaty between the U.S. and the foreign uh, jurisdiction. Well, you're going to be able to still make that payment, not withhold tax, but you're going to have to add back all of those payments as a tax benefit because there was no withholding. To the extent there was shared withholding um, in terms of a 10% as opposed to a 0%, you'd have to add back uh, up to um, a proportionate amount of the benefit back into the, the base, uh, into the modified taxable income base because, again, the full amount the 30% withholding wasn't applied to the income. The second coordination rule that is included is one that deals with the stacking or, or an ordering rule for interest deduction. So to the extent you had interest um, paid to a related party and you were allowed the interest, so you went through your 163J computation and you had some allowable interest and you had some disallowed interest, um, the way in which the beat tells you to order the disallowed and the allowed amount is to say that disallowed amounts are going to be treated as paid first to unrelated parties and then related parties. So what does that mean? It's essentially telling you that if you had any disallowed amounts, you apportion it to the unrelated party, and anything that you were allowed to take as a deduction potentially gets stacked to the related parties, meaning that because it's a related party payment, it is potentially subject to the addback for modified taxable income. So it's an unfavorable uh, taxpayer rule in the sense that they force you to allocate allowable interest deductions to related parties rather than some apportionment between related and unrelated. Um, and the other interesting side effect to this is that when 163J was amended, you no longer have to sort of track your related party debt and unrelated party debt. And so for the actual limitation itself, there's no longer a requirement to track this. But when you get into the beat, you do have to track it. And so it's kind of interesting that the intersect of these rules creates sort of an administrative burden on taxpayers to, to keep uh, account of, of their interest payments and their debt. This is another area that's come up a bunch just trying to deal with clients is they think once they get through the 163J calculations that somehow it, it's not also going to go through the beat filter, not the case. It's got to go through there as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's been those overlapping pieces that have been challenging. Tom, you mentioned the example before. Um, do you want to spend a couple minutes here and just go through the interaction of how BEAT works with the guilty rules and, and how it can produce some of those unintended results to your yeah, point? Yeah, thanks, Ken. <clears throat> the, um, in this example, what we wanted to try to illustrate was the fact that when you take a look at the interaction of an outbound related party payment, which is subject to BEAT, which might then also end up in a CFC, which is subject to guilty, or we'd have a guilty inclusion from that CFC, we might in fact end up with an effective tax rate which is above 21%. Yeah. And so the example we've set up, fairly simplistic, um, a U.S. parent making a payment, a base eroding payment to a CFC. And in this case, the U.S. parent had taxable income of 100 from other sources, takes a deduction for the $100 fee which is paid to the CFC. Um, and then it also has guilty. So guilty in this case, what we've assumed is in the CFC, they've received a payment of 100 They had $10 of expenses that were charged against that. So that there's 90 of uh, income which needs to be picked up under the guilty provisions. We also include an in income then, any of the for guilty purposes, the Section 78 gross up on any credits which would come back. Our CFC in this case was subject to a 10%. Uh, corporate income tax rate in the local country. Um, and then we get to deduct uh, the Section 250 deduction, which is the 50% um, exclusion that's provided with respect to um, the guilty pickup. 
So we're starting with taxable income of 50 in this case. After we've done our guilty work and we're down to 50, we compute our U.S. income tax provisionally at 21%, which is 10.5. And now we can take into account our foreign tax credits. Same exercise we've done in the past. Um, In this case, the foreign tax credit looks like it should have been 10, but because of the guilty provisions, which provide an 80% limitation, we only get eight uh, of that foreign tax credit that we can use. So our regular tax liability after foreign tax credits uh, is 2.5 net of the foreign tax credit. So that's where we're starting going back to Quinn's example of taxable income and the the flow chart that we're looking at before. Um, Now what we need to be able to do is take and compute modified taxable income. So taxable income in this case is the 50, which is a few lines above it. Um, And if you'll remember, we have to add back our beatable payments, our related party payments, that 100, that base eroding payment that was made to the CFC. So that modified taxable income is the 50 plus 100 or 150. The beat rate is 10%. So that would imply that there was a um, beat obligation of um, 15 and or 10% of the modified taxable income was 15. And when you compare that to the regular tax, so the beat in this case exceeds of 15, exceeds the regular tax liability of 2.5 by 12.5. So if we take a look at all in, in this calculation, our US tax burden was a regular corporate income tax of 2.5. A beat or minimum tax of 12.5, total of 15 paid to the US, as well as the fact that we paid 10 to our foreign corporation, our foreign jurisdiction where the CFC was located of 10. So it's, it's an example of where I think the interaction of these really does result in some need to pay close attention to how the computation works. Um, another thing I'll note in here, Ken, going back to some of the, the rules of thumb that we were talking about before, and I'll caution everybody ahead of time, don't use a rule of thumb. You got to actually do the calculation. <laughs> but if you're still sort of wondering whether or not you well, fall only in the policy this, space, <laughs> you're right, and that can never be wrong. But um, in this case, if you take a look at what the beatable payments were, the hundred, and compare that to the taxable income, that it's likely that this company would have been in a beat obligation at any point that its its outbound payments exceeded fifty, its taxable income. Now, again, don't use that as a rule of thumb, but if you want to self-check yourself when you're looking at your calculation and what spits out of you know, a big Excel spreadsheet, um, that'd be a good mindset to have in mind. Yeah, I mean, to your point, this one sticks out as you know it's going to be a beat taxpayer. You got $100 of taxable income, you got a $100 base erosion payment in there. You, you know that alternative tax is almost going to apply in this right. situation. So. Right. Tommy, you want to stay with us here and, I and do. talk a little bit about um, This is my favorite part. <laughs> um, <laughs> And what we want to talk about here is um, some provisions that were also included in 59 Cap A uh, around the beat, which relate to the regulatory authority provided to the Treasury. And it is extremely broad. Uh, It is an avoidance-type standard, uh, which talks about uh, the fact that that the Secretary is given authority to prescribe rules which are necessary to prevent the avoidance of the purposes of this section. The avoidance of purposes of this section. And they go out and spell out a number of things that we might otherwise call almost like planning ideas. The use of unrelated persons, conduit transactions, transactions arranged or designed in whole or in part to recharacterize payments, um, 
such that the reg authority here is extremely broad. It's almost an anti-abuse type standard, something we'd be akin to like a GAR that we'd see in, in the context of other countries. Uh, and I, I see this as a bigger box than what we have often been subject to in international planning. I think we've all become comfortable with the um, necessity of working within a standard of business purpose and economic substance. Um, this is something which I view as perhaps being even beyond that. Even if you're able to show that you have business purpose for a transaction, that there has been good economic substance behind this as well, that the, the broad language of this provision uh, to prescribe regulations is such that it could bring in any change because it does talk about anything to present, prevent the avoidance of the purposes of this section. Um, as I reflect on that, I mean, it's very difficult to give advice with this type of uncertainty hanging over our heads. Um, and, and there is kind of a standard here, I think, that taxpayers need to think of as well. And what I've been getting calls on from clients is, well, what can I do to manage within this? And, you know, I would, the standard isn't out there yet, but I would think something you could feel comfortable with carrying around is, is any change that you would make as a result of the um, applicability of these provisions, is it the way that your company does business? Is it artificial? Is, have you done something which is so different than what you've done before? Or has maybe what you've been doing in the past been something which you just weren't paying attention to because it was convenient or it didn't raise an issue like it does at this point in time? But um, I'm hoping that the IRS or Treasury puts together a set of standards which do sort of pull us back into that business purpose type framework that we're familiar with. Um, and the, as companies look forward to planning with this, they would be comfortable saying that this is the way that we do business uh, and could then go forward. Tom, I, I get through all these rules, and I want to come back to you with a question here, but I, I get through all these rules. They're very complicated. You mentioned before you're out talking to clients. You hail from my favorite place, Chicago. <laughs> so you're out there talking with clients. What are companies actually doing right now as it relates to trying to understand the implications of this or trying to rightfully so uh, determine how they can mitigate the impacts of beat right now? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, first and foremost, they're doing calculations to see if sort of the detailed work around identifying transactions out there which might be subject to beat the related party payments that are creating deductible items. That's step one. Step two is going in and doing the calculation under multiple scenarios because it's important that you understand in a sensitivity environment how your margins might vary over time and influence your taxable income, how net operating losses might influence that as, as well. So the identification, identification work, the um, modeling work, yeah. but then a lot of the discussions we've had too are what kind of things can I do? And the kind of things that we've been thinking about, some have been you know, very simple questions that we're getting around um, I understand that I'm supposed to, I understand this thought around cost of goods sold payments being exempt from these provisions, that where I buy goods from a foreign related party, that type of payment is not subject to beat. And so if I take a look at all of my financial transactions, should I take a closer look at my 263 cap A calculation? Should I understand better how inventory accounting is done? I remember when 263 Cap A came out, it was a big effort. A lot of companies went through a very detailed analysis. I don't know if that has happened in the last 20 years since then, but I encourage companies to do that with a caveat that uh, things like um, accounting method changes might be implicated as well. 
But uh, those are fairly simple. Let's take a look at sort of the way things are presented on a tax return. All the way, Ken, to on the other end of the spectrum, uh, people looking at, you know, for the convenience of my client in the past, I had agreed to do some rebilling with my foreign subsidiaries. Should I do that in the future? Because it means I have to collect from the client, and then I have to, to also perhaps be charged with my foreign subsidiary uh, for that uh, receipt of service that's paid in. Uh, so some of those convenience arrangements or things are thinking about changing as well. But it's, it's a, a considerable concern, especially to our services company clients. It's a great point. You know, the one other thing I rarely hear people talking about right now, but I'll just add to the mix of things to think about, or I'm starting to hear companies think about these days, is anything that's quantitative is a data exercise. And being able to come up with the data or thinking about your systems in a way that you can gather the data to try and do these calculations is another to do. And, and as you dialogue with clients, I think we, from a quantitative standpoint, assume that all that data exists. And I think as our clients start to dig into what their systems look like, they realize it's harder to do this. A lot of intercompany transaction activity is not tracked in a ledger. It's outside a ledger. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult environment to sort of do this. So that, that's another thing I'm just I'm hearing from, from companies. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.